Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. This morning, we are in... Isaiah chapter 31. We have been reading, going through Isaiah together. Isaiah is a long book, and so chapter 31 is not even quite halfway through. Um, Happy New Year. It was really quiet at 1030 this morning. And so I take that to mean everyone enjoyed welcoming in the new year last night. And when we turn to a new year, it, we reflect. It, it's a natural human response. The, the using, it's arbitrary really, but using this calendar, we just, it's a marker to say what happened. 2022. And we reflect on our lives, and then we then think about all of the changes that we want to make. I saw someone on the way to church this morning jogging, and he looked a little bit like me, someone who doesn't jog a lot. And I thought, I wonder if this is his New Year promise. And so day one, he's doing it. Really often we, this this whole approach to the new year, um, it, it leads us to make lists of things we want to start doing or stop doing. Read a read 50 books this year, lose 20 pounds, run a marathon, reduce sugar in the diet. Take all of your vacation days. Be kinder to your parents. Take a cooking class. Take a painting class. The list could go on and on, and each list would be different. But what if I told you there's a flaw in this method? This way of making changes in our lives really misses a vital step. How do you decide what you want to do? Who do you want to be? How did you decide who you want to be? The world has many suggestions. The world may say you should look a certain way. Or maybe your colleagues think you should look successful in some way. Perhaps your own ambition or your own pride is leading you in your decision-making. What is most important to you? And I think when we make these lists of what we want to do in the next year, it reveals what is most important to us. So my question is this. 
what if we get all of the things that we pursue this next year? You make a list of New Year's resolutions for 2023. What if you achieve it all? What will that do for you? Will that achieve everything that you've ever dreamed of? Is that really what you've been created for? So much of what we spend so much effort going after is temporary. Our bodies will deteriorate. Sorry to let, let you in on that. It was a secret, I know. But no matter what you do, and some people have tried a lot of things to prolong such deterioration. Fame will turn sour after time. Riches will not go with us to the next life. Even in this life, riches do not deliver contentment. I remember a few years back, I was watching an interview on, I don't know, uh, some news channel, and it was a businessman, billionaire businessman from this part of the world, in his 80s, and you could tell he was not content. He was working every day, long hours, still trying to achieve something. That's not what we've been made for. So then, what should we pursue? Uh, this is really one of the most profound questions we can ask. What do we pursue in life? What should guide your life? Too often, we never ask this question. We just glide along, oblivious to our own pursuits and what influences them. Israel was no different. It was in moments of crisis, or it's in moments of crisis when we see more clearly what our real pursuits are, and sometimes those are revealed to be vanity, a waste, vapor. So this morning we're in Isaiah 31, and we see Israel in a crisis moment. Their trust is in solutions that would fail them. And that trust in the failed solutions becomes exposed. So we'll walk through this chapter in four parts. Uh, trusting wrongly, fearing rightly, repenting fully, living hopefully. Let me read verses one through three. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because there are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of evil 
evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. As we've been walking through these chapters of Isaiah, particularly chapters 28 to 33, if you are a close reader of God's word, you may have discovered a recurring word in these chapters, and that is the word woe. And that's how we begin in this chapter. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on their horses. So the scenario is this, and we talked about this about a month ago when we talked about chapter 30. There's an empire in, on advance. The, Syri the Assyrian Empire is advancing. They were a cruel empire. And so Israel sought some help from a neighbor. They went to Egypt to try to seek help from Egypt. And here God has been telling them to trust him rather than to trust in Egypt. The leaders in Jerusalem have chosen to seek safety in Egypt. And even in, this, in spite of the warnings, they, they chose to try to trust, trust Egypt rather than God. And so here, this message from God through the prophet Isaiah is Egypt may look impressive with all of its chariots and horses and army, but the perspective of Israel is limited. They can only see so much. They trusted what they saw, but they were not looking with the eyes of faith but looking through the eyes of the world. When we can't see God at work, we begin to see limited possibilities. Oops. We try to take things into our own hands. Egypt it says here, where they were humans, just mere flesh. They're horses, mere flesh. God is spirit, meaning God is more than what we can see. And so here we need faith. Faith that knows that God is all-powerful and sovereign. Faith that understands that God is the only living being in the universe capable of offering true safety. God alone saves. Anyone else or anything else that makes such a promise is lying to you and will fail to deliver. There's a, a story in a passage in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 6. And here there is a Syrian king, not a Syrian king. Syrian king who is warring against Israel. 
the Syrian army was trying to catch the Israel, the, the, the people of God by surprise, trying to set an ambush. And the prophet uh, by name of Elisha was receiving visions from God and was telling Israel where the Syrian army would be. And so they were able to avoid them each time. This was frustrating, the Syrian king. And so the Syrian king sent, they said, well, find me this prophet who keeps telling them their whereabouts. And so he sent chariots and horses and a great army to seize the prophet Elisha. And so you can imagine, if you wake up one morning and you see an entire army surrounding your home, probably going to create some panic. And so one of the servants of Elisha did have such panic. And so it says this in 2 Kings 6, when the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, Oh, Lord, God, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. Behold, the mountains were full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. What we see is only part of what really is. We are tempted to live based on only what we can see, but there is more happening and God is in control of it all. We must learn to see God and see him in his full might and sovereignty first. And then the other threats begin to fade. Secondly, fearing rightly, we read verses four and five. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare it and rescue it. Healthy fear is very good. If God alone can save us, then it makes sense to fear God above all else. Here in verse 4, God is likened to a lion. God does not exist to serve us or to operate the way we think he should. God is God. There is no other. He is the creator of the galaxies. He is the sustainer of every orbit of every planet and moon. He is the supreme ruler over every creature. As such, he is judge, and he has the right to condemn. 
if this makes some of us nervous, it might be that we have taken a seat on God's throne rather than allowing God to be in his rightful place. It is important that we remember this new year that God reigns over all in 2023. The writer C.S. Lewis, who wrote the Chronicles of Narnia a series of books, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, he uses this, these books, uh, really children's books, to awaken our imagination to what God is doing. And so there is a lion in these stories who represents God. There's a short dialogue between Susan, a girl discovering Narnia for the first time, who's talking to a talking beaver. No, that just sounds weird. If you haven't read the stories, read the stories or watch the movie, but read the stories. You can watch the movie, but read the stories. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. If we only see God as a warm light or a cosmic teddy bear or as a generous uncle who gives us whatever we want, then we've created our own God, one that serves us. That is not the God of the Bible. Amos 1-2 says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastors of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Later in Amos chapter 3, The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken. Who can but prophesy? A healthy fear of God helps us prioritize what truly matters. We do not fear because God, uh, because we, we do not fear God because he is mean. No, God is good. We fear him because he is powerful and supremely good. Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. We were created for eternity, but when we pursue temporal things, we are fearing other things. It is people who fear God rather than men who have changed the world. Throughout church history, we see examples. And so this morning, I'll just mention one example. Ludwig Nomensen. Ludwig Nomensen. It's a German man born in 1834. And he had this calling on his life to take this message of hope, the good news of Jesus, to far lands. And in particular, he was called to go to the island of Sumatra in Indonesia to a people known for being cannibals. 
the Batak people. There were some missionaries that went to the Bataks before Ludwig Nomensen. And let's just say cannibals did what cannibals do. They were a fierce people, a people that had intentionally isolated themselves from the world. So this story is about when Nomensen first entered into the interior where the Bataks were living. It says this, straight to the courtyard of the Raja, the stranger went, following by the curious villagers, the king turning contemptuously to his unwelcome visitor, rudely asked him, and what are you doing here in this place? Why have you come? He says, I would like very much to come and live with you here in order to teach you all who wish to how to become clever and happy, was the reply. This astonishing announcement caused an uproar, and it was a long time before it was quiet enough to hear what anyone was saying. Live here? They had isolated themselves in such a way that any outsider who lived among them was considered uh, open, open season to kill him and gain his power. And so no one dared live there. And so they went on to tell him that he was not allowed to live there. And the stranger listened patiently as the matter was discussed. And at last, one of the opposers turned fiercely to him saying, now and into your jokes, when are you leaving? Ludwig Nomensen answers, never was the calm reply. I, did I not say I wanted to build a house and live here? Then we will burn it down and I will build it again answered the white man firmly. We will cut off your legs and throw you into the river, threatened another one of the opposition. And he smiled and says, friend, you do not mean that. The men uh, argued, the men of the village argued for the next five days over what to do with this strange foreigner among them. Eventually, they allowed him in because they saw that he had some kind of strong presence that they couldn't, couldn't understand. He stayed for 56 years. When Ludwig Nomensen died in 1918, the Batak Church counted 180,000 members. 788 teacher preachers, 34 ordained Batak pastors. Today, the Batak Protestant Christian Church is one of the largest in Indonesia and really in Asia with a membership of over 3 million people. This one man feared God rather than man. Repenting fully. Verses six and seven says this, turn to him, uh, turn to him from whom people 
have deeply revolted. O children of Israel, for in that day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. The core message that, that God has delivered through the prophet Isaiah, it's simple. To make it complicated is to misunderstand it. Turn to him. Turn to God, the one who can save us. But to do this, we must be willing to recognize we have been going the wrong direction, and we need to U-turn, thus the U-turn sign. The image you see is a Malaysian U-turn sign, which says that light vehicles only. And in this passage, what we see is in order to turn to God, you must let go of things. We cannot bring our idols with us. To turn to God is a definite choice. It means we must choose. Do we trust our idols, whatever they may be in your life, whether it is your pride, your career, your education, your family, your image, your wealth, your physique, your reputation with your friends, your happiness, the list could go on and on. We must cast away our idols so that we can turn to God. In other words, turning to God is not a, oh, I'm sorry, God. While we continue to treasure our idols, we must let go of our small gods and turn to meet the most high God. But to do this, it is quite costly. It requires a life investment. You could think of it this way. Um, think of it as a purchasing your dream house. You have determined what you want, the most beautiful and lavish house ever. And in order to get this house, you have put down a down payment of everything you own. And then you promise to pay in the next 20 years everything you earn in the next 20 years. So you spend the next 20 years trying to save up the rest to pay for this house. But then imagine that you discover the house is actually while it looks dreamy from the exterior, it's actually not built that well. And during the next 20 years, it begins to deteriorate. The plumbing is bad. The roof is leaking in many places. The foundation is cracked. The sooner you recognize that it is a failed dream, that you realize that your dream house is actually not that dreamy. In fact, it's not even a good house at all. And it's certainly not worth your life savings. But now you have 
the problem. You have poured everything you have literally into this house. And to admit that you have been investing in something that is an empty promise is not an easy step. To switch courses means you let go of that down payment. You let go of everything that you have put into that house. And it may feel like a terrible waste, but to continue saving for an empty dream, is that really what we ought to do? Jesus called us to repent, to make a U-turn. He says in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Jesus offers us new life worth living, but it will cost everything. He asks us to take up a cross, an instrument of death, and then follow him. And if that was all, then it would still seem quite impossible. But there's good news in this. Jesus goes before us. Jesus went to the cross, dying so that we do not have to. Jesus bids us give up our empty dreams and follow him to experience real life. Jesus' death brings forgiveness for those who trust him. Jesus is worth giving up everything you have in order to follow him. For our last part, living hopefully. I'm going to read the last two verses of this chapter. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, and a sword, not of man, shall devour him. And he shall flee from the sword, and his young men shall be put to forced labor. His rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. These verses may not be what you expected with the title, Living Hopefully, but this foretelling of the fall of the Assyrians actually is an assurance that everything will work out. God will remove all injustice in those who carry out such violence. There is more to life than what we see. It is like the angel armies surrounding Elisha and his servant. Our lives go on for an eternity. Therefore, to die trusting God is more glorious than to live a long earthly life trusting empty dreams and false gods. Ludwig Nomensen boldly face death, the threat of death, for the sake of the Batak people, because he knew, he knew that he had a treasure in Jesus that was worth giving up his life in order to share 
eternal life with others. He also knew that the Batak people would face an eternity without Jesus if someone did not take this message of hope to them. God will deliver on his promises. He promises to judge evil. He also promises to save those who place their complete trust into his hands. One writer says about this passage, he says, on the other hand, there is the mighty sword of God, that dependable rock that appears as a fierce, fiery light when the theophany of God appears in Zion. It says, salvation is sure. God is the victor. He is completely trustworthy. So as we conclude, three things to take with you into this year to reflect on, to reorder your life around. Fear rightly. Fear God. God is not safe, but he's good. Second, repent fully. This means you may have to let go of, of the small gods in your life, the idols that are in your heart. Let go of those things and turn to God. And then live hopefully, knowing and trusting that God is more powerful than we can imagine and is at work addressing all of the injustice in the world. This year, will you turn to him?